The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. We pray with me. Let's ask for help as we come before the scriptures together. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And uh, we admit right now as we come before you that you are not us. You don't always, uh, well, sometimes you want different things than we want. And sometimes you, um, you kind of get in our face and tell us we need readjustment. Um, give us the grace to hear what you have to say. And God, I pray that as we listen to you through this passage, that you would do work in our hearts that I could never, ever hope to do. Lord, you know the secret places, the dark spots in our minds and our hearts. And I pray that you'd shine light on those for each one of us in your grace and your love, out of your goodness to us. Lord, we, we open our, our hearts and our minds to you um, right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you remember your last big fight? You remember? They said something, didn't they? Or they did something. Or they didn't do something. Just like they tend to. And you got that familiar edge, right? Again, you thought, they never change you might have thought. Then you said something. You did something or didn't do something. After all, they deserved it. And what would anyone expect? And then you felt the distance in the relationship, right? Maybe it blew up and you had a good argument about uh, who's the biggest jerk and the worst hypocrite. Isn't that, isn't that how these goes? Or maybe you just got icy cold and you didn't relate at all. I think we could all admit that we have had conflict like this in our relationships, and probably not just once. Now, conflict isn't always bad, right? Uh, sometimes it's healthy, and occasionally we handle it well. But sometimes... A lot of times, over years and years and years, conflict isn't handled very well at all. It gets, it gets ugly, doesn't it? Some of us are in deep, ugly conflict right now. What have been some of your worst? Marriages have some of the worst conflicts, don't they? And most common. But it's parents and children, too. Siblings, conflicts with friends, old friends. Maybe they're, maybe they're not friends anymore. Someone at work, or like this passage is talking about, it could be people at church. Ugly conflict. And we're continuing our revitalized series this morning. <laughs> You're like, revitalized? You just depressed me. Um, we want new energy and new intimacy in our relationships with God. We've been specifically looking at prayer the last few weeks because that's how we relate to, relate with God. And I wanted us 
at some point in this to hear about what this passage has to say, specifically about prayer and our conflicts. I know it's a downer. Look, we're all going to get a little beat up today um, by the scriptures. I am too. We're all sitting under it getting confronted. Um, But listen, conflicts are a huge part of our lives. After 11 years of being a pastor, heck, I don't need to be a pastor to know this, but I especially know it as a pastor. We have deep, ugly, horrid conflicts all throughout our lives, each one of us. And if our relationships with the Lord don't influence our conflicts, then what's wrong? I mean, shouldn't our prayer lives, our our connection with the Lord, our relationship with Him, a knowledge of His grace, shouldn't that be evident, especially in conflict? And so we want to think about conflict a little bit, and specifically praying through it. And I think in this passage, if we're open, we can see that Praying through conflict with a knowledge of God's grace can actually transform some things quite a bit. It can change things. So we're in the book of James this morning. Uh, You'll remember James is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up as a skeptic of Jesus. And then as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, James converted when he met his resurrected brother. And if he had a time machine, he could go back and be in the room for one moment. I'd like to see that one. Hi, James. And James converted heavily and became a leader of the early church. We're told by tradition that James uh, was killed by being thrown off the temple um, for his faith in Christ. But it would make sense, wouldn't it, that James is very serious about living the Christian faith. So he wants integrity. He wants consistency. So his letter is confronting like fake, cozy, casual kind of Christianity that sounds nice but doesn't actually live it out. James is confronting like halfway Christianity that looks good but it's rotten within. He's he's confronting a Christianity that's Christian everywhere except conflicts. In this passage, um, James will later say about his audience, they're double-minded. It's like having two allegiances. And it reminds us we, we can tend to retire from Christianity during the fights, right? We love Jesus at church until we're arguing. Then we'll take a few minutes off from being a Christian. And so James is pressing in, and he's going to say it. I want to say it ahead of time. There's more grace, okay? There's more grace. There's more of God's love for you. There's more grace. But as we know that grace and as we believe that grace, we need to we need to be Christian in our conflicts. And so we're going to see four things, I think, in this passage as we pray through our conflicts. And, and again, prayer, we're relating with the Lord through our conflicts. Um, We're going to see the cause of our conflicts, hopefully, a new sight as to what's going on. Cause of our conflicts. Two, I think we're going to see what I'm calling like a decision point. You kind of run into a fork in the road, and you got to go one way or the other. We're going to see our conflicts. We're going to see the decision point. Three, we're going to see the response that God's grace is nudging us towards. And then number four, the healing we want to see how prayer takes part in all of these. So the cause, the decision point, the response, the healing, all in an atmosphere of prayer. 
So first of all, the cause. We look with me at James' question in verse 1. What does he ask? What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Now I know my answer and I know your answer. The answer is, well, have you met this person? (laughs) Right? Why are you in this argument? Did you hear what they did? Why are you fighting? Do you know what they never do? Have you seen who I'm dealing with? That's the cause of my conflicts. Duh, obviously. Do we dare keep reading? (laughs) James has a proposal, an answer that might be different. Look what he says in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war with you. You got desire problems. It's what you want. James is proposing that our conflicts exist in part because our desires are crooked, they're wrong, specifically they're prideful. Prideful. Now, each one of us, we have very powerful desires, right? We don't even talk about some of these things a lot, but they're so deep, so important to us, so precious to us, and they kind of, they kind of lurk and, and, and haunt us over our shoulders throughout all of life. Dreams for how life should be or how it should have been. Hopes for the future. Expectations for how you should be treated. And they're not all bad, and they're not all wrong. But due to our inclinations, they become an obsessive self-orientation. The, um, the Greek word underneath this idea, this word of passions, is where we get the idea, the, the word hedonism. So that's a specific kind of passion, right? A hedonism is, is a self-orientation. My desires are the ones that rule, that matter, that dominate. These deep desires I have, some of them are good, but they become everything. James will later say we need humility, and the word for passion is hedonism. So that seems to imply that maybe we have some pride. Pride. Pride is infatuated with self, right? The people you can't stand the most are the people you think are the most prideful, Why is that? I think a main reason is because we know pride is a lie, right? They think they're better than they actually are. We see them and we're like, no, dude, you're not that you're not that great. You're not that important. No, this isn't your world, we say. But they kind of tend to think it is. Like we we have wonderful radars for sensing other people's pride. We can, we can sniff it out, right? We tend to be blind, deaf, and dumb when it comes to our own. We're kind of taken aback. What? That's not pride. That's obvious, right? Are you suggesting I'm wrong? Because you might want to rethink that. I have never been wrong Pride is infatuated with self, overemphasizes self, right? Pride always thinks pride is right and obviously right. And pride does not tend to react well to confrontation. I know mine doesn't. Um, Look what James says. 
Verse 2, you desire and do not have. So what? So you murder. You got these deep desires on what life should be or what it should have been like, right? And you've got, sometimes there's a lot of pain in there, a lot of deep pain. You've been hurt. You have hopes. You have expectations on how you should be treated, and you're probably right on a lot of those things. And yet, it becomes a self-orientation in our pride. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That person, right, that person, they are taking something from you. And maybe they are. They're not giving you something you deserve. They're hurting you. Maybe they are. You desire and you do not have. But then we go further than just disappointment. We go into murder. Now, um, the Lord Jesus did something horrible with this command. You know, thou shalt not murder. Do you remember what Jesus did? You've heard it, that, you've heard it said, he said to uh, the crowd. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And most of us are like, whew, got one command I never broke. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, if you've ever called somebody a fool, and it's really the seed of murder, that insult in your heart, you, you, and we, we chop at the roots of who they are. It's murder. It's not with an ax. But as many of us know, you can be quite, quite skillful in hurting someone without doing anything physical at all. And so they said something, they did something, they didn't do something, and they're going to pay, right? They're going to feel your displeasure. So we, we kill them um, by what we say or do or don't do. And even just not providing the love God says we owe. We work for their hurt because we didn't get what we wanted, he continues in verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What's, what's coveting? It's one of the Ten Commands, right? Thou shalt not covet. Coveting, it's tricky because um, the Bible is not against desires. You know, some religions, some Eastern religions say the problem is that we have desires. And so if we didn't just have desires, then we'd have peace. I had a couple try that in marriage counseling once. Nobody in here, by the way. I had a couple try that in marriage counseling once, and, and the person was talking about this Eastern religion, and I, you know, I was pressing on him a little bit, and I said, well, to his fiance, so um, your spouse thinks it would be great if he had no desire for you. How do you feel, ladies? <laughs> no, right? No. Um, Christianity gets that desires, we're made with desires. God is full of desires. Desires are supposed to be hot and wonderful and awesome. Um, desires, be happy. It's not that we have desires. What's the problem? It's what we desire and how we desire it. So there could be something in your life that you desire. It's not a bad thing. Some Great, desire it. But do you always get every good thing you desire? I don't. Coveting takes that good desire and then what? It makes it everything. I have to have this. I am owed this. If I don't get this, God has failed me. 
In fact, that desire becomes, Paul calls coveting, idolatry. It becomes like a God, this thing I must have. I must have. And so we covet, and then we don't get what we covet. We fight. We take it out on those around us who maybe are in the way we feel like of getting what we want. Recognition or praise or security, identity. These things go so deep. And really, maybe you know better. The Holy Spirit knows better. James says that when we have fights, it's not just about the jerks who happen to be in our lives. We need to look deeper, right? Where do we need to look? Into our own hearts. What do I want? What do I want? And here's where you have to, you have to pray. I've, I've got a, a, a psalm to put on the board. Look at this. Psalm 139, 23. Will you read this with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Show me. Show me my heart in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of fighting. What do I want? What is this deep need I have lurking in me? And how am I getting this wrong? Where is the coveting? And as we see, oh God, how do I find this need answered in you? That right there would change conflict quite a bit. So James says, conflict shows you broken desires. Not only that, our prayer lives show us broken desires. Look at verse 2. This is what drew me to this text in the beginning. Uh, Verse 2, you do not have because, why? You do not ask. So there's things you want, right? And why do you ask for things? Because you want them. There's things you want, and you're going after them in all the wrong ways, and James seems to be saying, have you tried... (laughs) Praying about what you want and need? Have you tried taking it to the Lord and asking him for this deep whatever it is? Have you gone to him with it? You might be surprised at what would happen if you would ask. And this really struck me because as I'm studying prayer, and I'm trying, you know, I don't know if this is helpful for you, but I'm saying it like this. Prayer is a response to the friendship of God throughout all of life. I'm relating with him in prayer. I'm hearing from him. I'm, I'm speaking to him. And so I'm responding to all of life with God when I'm praying. So I've got these problems or these issues or these needs, and I'm coming to him with it, and I'm hearing from him, and I'm looking to him, looking to his grace. Not only that, I'm responding to who he is according to his word, right, in prayer. I'm coming to him as he's revealed himself to be. Prayer is theology made personal, we've been saying, where it's just the, it's the God I believe in. Yes, I believe this truth. Now it's you I'm talking to, the one I believe in. And what is our prayerlessness? You know, I don't ask. I don't ask. I don't pray. What does our prayerlessness say about our desires towards God? This is really haunting me, right? I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to beat you down or burden you. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna come to grace, but we're, we're looking at ourselves honestly, right? Within a context of grace, we're loved through Jesus Christ. But this is what, this is what we say, right? How's your prayer life? And this is what most of us do. 
including me sometimes. I'm, I'm with you. I don't pray enough, right? I don't pray enough. I know. I'm too busy. Are you too busy to fight? The last fight you had where you're like, you know, I'm too, I'm too busy. I'm not going to get into this with you. We have plenty of energy for those conflicts. It's coming. The rage. We will vindicate ourselves. Vindicate our value. Vindicate our worth. But we won't ask. And I, I want to repent about this with you. You know, when we won't go to God in prayer for these deep needs, what are we saying? We're saying to God, like, you don't have what I need. You're not there for me. You won't listen to me. Or maybe if we're honest, I don't even want to hear what I think you're going to say because you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Or you're going to tell me I'm going to need to love or reconcile with someone in a way I do not want to do. And so we won't pray. Oh, God, we're not much impressed with you, prayerlessness says. That's a picture of screwed up desires, right? Self is high. God is low. Backwards. Not only that, James says this, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, the hedonism idea is here. Um, imagine a dinner with the president. That's always a funny thing to imagine because we have a variety of different political points of view. But for the sake of illustration, imagine a dinner with the president and asking him for a bunch of resources that would undermine all his policies. And that president would say to you, no. You probably wouldn't even do that. It'd be so ridiculous. Imagine going to a holy God with requests that support pride and coveting. God, give me stuff so I can further support the fact that I am in your place and no longer need you. <laughs> what are we praying for? What do we want? Now, if you're like, I need to know what I should want when I pray, go to Luke 11, read the Lord's Prayer. If you want to hear a sermon on that, it's from two weeks ago. It's on the website. But James finds, right, to sum it up so far, our conflicts are showing us our desires are messed up and our, and our messed up prayer lives are showing us our desires are messed up. And so that leads us to a decision point. Look at verse 4. Ouch. Let's all just sit under the ouch together. What does James say? Verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, what's the idea with the world here, right? John three sixteen. God so loved the world. How are we going to understand this idea of world? Um, this, the world being an enemy of God. Well, the, the use of the world here um, doesn't mean terra firma that we live on. That is good. World here means a system of thought and thinking and feeling that is God-less. Anti-God, apart from God, don't need God, demeaning God, away from God, right? It's that whole system of thought and feeling that is God-less. Remove God, replace with something else. The world. The world. Don't acknowledge him as God or like him as God or submit to him as God. 
And we see, obviously, that the world and God, the world in this use of the word world, the world and God are not friends. God is glorious and righteous and holy, and the world doesn't like God, and so God and the world, not friends. Clear enough. Now, for Christians, right, if you, you, ever, you, like, you ever like Christian talk where nobody can understand it or, for, you know, if you want to be Christianese, right, the world, you know, worldliness, it's bad, right? And what are we thinking of in that kind of churchified use of worldliness? And have you seen the movies coming out of Hollywood, you know, or uh, fashion these days? Or, you know, for some of you, you weren't allowed to ride your bikes on Sunday or play cards. It's worldly. The irony of this passage is as James is talking to church-going people who are doing what? Fighting. And he's saying, that's the worldliness. Maybe you didn't go to the bad movie, but you fought. That's the worldliness. It's right here. It's in that self-infatuation. It's in that pride. It's in that hurting others when you don't get what you want. Worldliness here. And so James in verse 4 says, you adulterous people. And commentators point out how James is kind of like the Old Testament prophet here. And what did, um, what did the prophet say to Israel as they would worship other gods? You're, you're adulteresses. And the reason they would say that is because of the place God is supposed to have in our lives. It's like he's the great husband, right? And we together as his people are his bride. And so... In Greek, it actually says, you adulteresses. Um, and it's pointing out, we're all together in, in this group, the feminine, because we're all together in this group, we are the bride. We are the bride. I am the bride. You are, we together are the bride. And so when we are worldly, we who claim the Lord Jesus when we are infatuated with self and therefore just like the world that is godless and anti-God, what are we doing? We're sleeping with the enemy. When our pride and coveting leads us into quarreling and fighting, we are sleeping with the enemy. We are flirting with the world. And so I think James is being very serious here, don't you? We tend to think, don't we tend to think of these fights and conflicts as like sideline sins or can't do anything about it sins or maybe small sins. I didn't steal anything, but I had a nasty fight and I said some stuff, but whatever. And James is, James is pulling that onto the center of the table and saying, when you do that mess, that is adultery of the heart. Decision point. Decision point. To be frank, right? To be so frank, it's hard to hear. It's hard to think about. Some of these conflicts have lasted and have, for years and years and years, and they replay over and over and over again. Now, there's a, there's a whole section of this I can't even get to this morning on how to handle conflict in a healthy way. Maybe someday, right? We, we need to do that. But here, this kind of self-oriented, injuring the other kind of conflict that happens. James is saying, this cannot continue. 
You can't excuse it. It's worldliness. It has to stop. Decision point, right? Because, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that means you're lining up with them, doing, doing according with the godless system. When you're participating, you make yourself a what? An enemy of God. It's in God's face. So verse 5, do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? A lot of questions about what exactly this language means. It's one of the toughest verses to get clear in all the Bible as far as how the Greek works. But I think the major idea is clear. God yearns what? Jealously. For whom? Remember who we are? We're his bride. So James is saying, we don't just want your religious performance. Don't just want your religious performance. The Lord doesn't just want religiosity. What does he want? Like a husband wants all of his bride. The Lord wants all of your allegiance, all your heart, all your trust. So this leads us to the right response. What a beautiful line here. We got called all together. Adulteress is in verse 4. But in verse 6, what does James say? But he gives more, what? Grace. Let's just say it again. At the risk of being cheesy, it's so beautiful. Say it with me, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Isn't that, isn't that so great? Do you ever feel like you're just going to run out? You've gone just, I've, oh no, I've messed it up again. I have extinguished all of the grace. What do I do now? <laughs> Grace is God's lavish love for us. Undeserved is the key word. Undeserved. You're like, I don't deserve it. I know, it's great. It's part of the definition. Undeserved. Love you don't deserve, but you get anyway in Christ. He gives more grace. There's always more grace. There's more love for you in Jesus Christ. He gives more grace. You didn't run out. More than you need forever. You know, the Son of God did not die to provide a limited amount of grace that wouldn't be enough. Can I get an amen? He died to give us infinite, eternal, lavish grace that will never run out. And here's how you tap into it. That's why this is the response. Verse 6, Therefore it said, God opposes the proud, So if you want to be worldly and prideful, you don't want God opposing you. You're never going to win that one, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the who? Humble. Humble. How do you tap into that grace? How do you go swim in God's love, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance, God's empowering? How do you get it? Be humble. Be humble. The heart of the world is pride. The heart of God's people is humble. In fact, the only requirement for getting grace is humility. It's the only requirement for getting grace, to know you need it. Isn't that wonderful? You could have a horrible resume on your past, and if you're like, God, I got nothing, I need your grace, you got everything you need to get all the grace you need. On the other hand, if you live like a religiosity kind of did good stuff life, and you're like, I don't need any grace, I did it all myself, you're in trouble. 
right? Humility is the key to getting grace. I need, I don't have, God help me. Humility is an honest view of yourself in the light of God and who he is. Honest view of self in the light of God and who he is. And if pride is infatuated with self, humility is infatuated with God. So are you overrun with conflict? Are your desires a wreck? What is God calling you to do? Humble yourself and receive his grace. Humble yourself and receive his grace. Now, we're terrified to humble ourselves. This is why we fight so hard in these conflicts, right? Because we're fighting for an identity. We're fighting for our rights. We're fighting for our place. And we're afraid if we don't fight for ourselves, we'll get trampled on. Look what God's grace does for you. What is his grace saying to you in Christ? Hey, guess what? You're loved. You're forgiven. You're my daughter. You're my son. You're okay. It's okay. I've got you. I've got you. I love you. Which means, you know, if you, if you feel safe in that love, the love of God for you in Jesus, can you lose a little in your argument? Can you change your methods a little in your debates, in your fights? Can you be humble? You can, because you don't have to win everything for self anymore, because Jesus has given you that heart safety that you need. So we've got to come humbly. Look at these six ways humility responds when desires are worldly in verses 7 to 8. What's the first one? What's that first word, verse 7? Submit yourself. Mm. I've yet to meet anybody who's like, that's my favorite part of Christianity. (laughs) I don't like this word. (laughs) Submit. Okay, pride says, I've got it, I control, I deserve, I determine, the key word being I. Submit says, I'm done. You can be God now. I'm done being my own authority. I'm done insisting on me. I'm done with the covetousness of I must have this. God, you decide. You decide. It's your world. It's not mine. Humility or submission is heard in Jesus' prayer. Lord, take this cup from me in the garden, but not my will. What's he say? Your will be done. Submit to God. And how does this happen, folks? That's why this is in a prayer. You, some of us, we need to... All of us, we need to go to the Lord with set aside time and we need to pray about our hearts and our conflicts. Only the Lord knows what He will show you in that moment. Pray. And part of the prayer means, has to be, you say in your own words, God, I submit to you. You're God, you have, you're king, you have a story, you've got plans, you've got desires, and I want to follow what you're doing. I'm giving up on my own kingdom here. Submit to God. Second one. Resist the devil. This isn't exorcisms. I think the, the, devil's, the devil's big thing is what he says to you. It's how he tempts you. He demeans God, he demeans God's word, and, and wants to replace God with something else. So I think if you resist the devil, I think it's about ideas you believe. And to resist the devil is to say, I'm going to be very choosy on what I listen to, especially in conflict. What, what voices are in your heart and your mind in conflict about what you deserve and what you must do? 
What if you rejected the wrong voices and you listened to the voice of your father from his word? It would be different. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to reject and fight what isn't of God. I'm going to align myself with his word. Number three, draw near to God. How do you do that? How do you draw near to God? I remember a time in my life when everything was changing for me. It's my junior year of college, and this passage was coming alive in a lot of ways. And uh, for me, for me, it was just time with God in His Word and prayer and thinking a lot. But it was a constant ebb of like, God, I need you. I don't, I don't want this life without you. I don't want to do what I was doing. I want to be right with you. I want to be close to you. I want to seek you. I want to spend time with you. What is that? It's prayer. It's relating to God throughout all of life. It's hearing him in his word. It's going to him in prayer. It's being with him. Pray, people. Pray, especially in times of conflict. Draw near to God, not only that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands mean as you're drawing near to God, at some point you need to take action. Take action. Imagine a time of prayer saying, Lord, how do I handle this next conflict differently? What do I need to be differently? Imagine, imagine getting with someone you know and you trust and saying, here's my issue, here's what I want to do differently. Pray for me. You got any advice for me? Plan the work, work the plan, right? Cleanse your hands in the power of God's grace. Purify your hearts, he says. This means quit flirting. Go all in, Jesus. All the eggs in one basket. All right, this is the way I'm going. I'm drawing a line in the sand. And the last one, this is hard for Western Christianity, verse 9. Right? If we had services like these, no one would come. What does he tell us to do? I love this language. Be wretched. <laughs> How do you even do that? Be wretched. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does this mean? One thing is echoing in my mind on this. Quit making excuses. In verse 9, what are you wretched over? What are you mourning over? Your own sin. Read your own mail, right? Is the other person in your conflict sinning? Yes. Is God going to hold you responsible for their sin on judgment day? No. For whom are you responsible? You. I sinned. Maybe your sin was 2% of the 100%. Are you mourning your 2%? I sinned. No excuses. I'm sorry. It's not minimizing it anymore. It's owning it. It's responding appropriately. These are all responses of humility to God's grace. Humility does these things somehow, some way. And listen, when we, when we humbly pray through our hearts, our conflicts, look what happens in verse 10. What a wonderful promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord. What will he do? 
he will exalt you. So, uh, so delicious, so ironic. When you're in this conflict and you're fighting, what are you fighting for? You are fighting for your exaltation somehow. Your survival, your point of view, your agenda, you're working for yourself. And in the, when that becomes prideful, right, coveting, it's destructive, it's worldly. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord, an honest appreciation of who we are before him, and we come to him humbly, submitting to him, verse 10, this amazing promise, you humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will raise your head. He will give you nobility. He will stand for you. He will provide for you, supply for you. He will exalt you. What's more meaningful, to exalt yourself and be seen by others or to be exalted by another? You ever just had a sweet time and it was, maybe it wasn't prideful at all. You just, somebody mentioned to someone else about something you had done or, or something you were to them that meant a great deal. So I'm talking about the pure moment here where, where somebody praises you to someone else. Wow. And what, how did you feel? It was, it was satisfying in one sense, but you almost felt shy in another sense. But it was, it was good. It humbled you, but it encouraged you. you. You weren't like praising yourself, but you wanted to be that way more. Imagine God exalting you. This is my, this is my girl right here. Look how she's living life. This is my, this is my son in Christ. Him raising you up. How sweet would that be? See, we don't humble ourselves to just hate ourselves and become mats upon which the world may walk. It's not suffering for its own sake. It's dying to live. It's being humble to be exalted in the right way by a holy God in his time, in his fashion. God will lift you up. Isn't this life-giving pattern of the cross just written into all of life? What's it take for a child to have life? A mother must lay down her life. Can I get an amen, right? And it won't happen without that in every way, physically, resource and all that. How many of you, you've, you've raised children, and you're like, yep, we gave it all away <laughs> for them. You have to give life to see life grow. There has to be a dying to live. Now, how did you come to be a child of God? I mean, you can hear it, right? You can feel it. You can see the shadow of the cross over this passage. How did you become exalted as an adopted daughter or son of God in heaven? He laid down his life. Look at this passage from Philippians 2. I wanna, it's a little bit lengthy. I want to read all of it with you. We'll start in verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He was humbled. And he was exalted. And when we humble ourselves in repentance coming to him, his life for ours, we are exalted, justified, forgiven, made righteous. And now daily it's a pattern we walk. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross Daily, every day dying, and follow me. Not because we love pain. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. You're get, when, 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 when pride gets humbled and you die to live, you're giving up a fake, secondary, ghost-like life. And you're entering into real life, eternal life, God's life in Christ. And this is what is amazing. Okay, we're, James is taking us to, all right, look further into your conflicts. You've got prideful hearts, right? This is a worldliness problem. You need to make a choice. There's more grace. Let's humble ourselves. Let's submit ourselves to God. And as we humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us. It's the pattern of the cross. It's how we were saved. It's how we're brought in to God's people. Look at verse 18. When we pray humbly through our conflicts, this is from James 3.18. It's in this context of community in this letter. And a harvest of righteousness, so good things, right things, things that God loves. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Make peace. What can happen to your conflicts when you pray through them humbly, relying on God's grace? More peace. I'm not promising easy button peace. There are other people involved here, right? I'm not, this isn't promising like flowers and roses instantly. No way. But there can be more peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. They will be called children of God when we humble ourselves and receive his grace. So let's, don't just let this end at, at, at this Massive words I've thrown out at you. God's inviting you to pray through your conflicts. Take all of life to him. Take your heart to him, your desires to him. Take these people to him, praying for them. Go humbly. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to God. Pray it out. 
find his grace. Let him exalt you and maybe even make peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're amazed that you would lay down your life for us. So often we don't even want to do this for our neighbors, and yet you did it for us. And so we just thank you that you humbled yourself so that we could live. Lord, help us. We've, we've got fights all the time. We have pride we're hanging on to. I pray for each one of us here, Lord. I pray for anybody who, um, who doesn't know you as their friend, as their savior, that they would see what you've done in humbling yourself. Uh, for them to pay for their sins, to make them right with you, and they would trust you. Even right now, they would trust you, give themselves to you. And Lord, I pray for the conflicts that lurk in all our lives, uh, specifically the ones in this room, from this week, from this day, the ones that haunt us, the ones that are constantly attacking. Help us, help us. Help us to pray through our desires and let us see anything in our hearts that isn't pleasing to you. Lord, we humble our pride before you. You are God. We submit to you, Lord, and we ask you for grace, more of your grace in our lives and more of your grace in these situations, Lord. Bring a peace that honors you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.